Heavenly Father, I come before you as a weak man. And we are weak brothers and sisters. We need your help. Please, Father, send your Holy Spirit and open up your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. Help us to hear you rightly, to understand what you mean for us to know. Change our hearts. Bring us into conformity with your word. Above all, Father, help us to see that your patience, that your delay, seeming delay, that your waiting is patience, that it's a means for our salvation. God, help us to treasure your patience, even as we treasure the day of your return. We love you, Lord. Please come and be with us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, we're closing in. By this week and next week, we will conclude our study of 2 Peter. 2 Peter was written to help Christians live a godly life, to help us avoid serious error by remembering God's promises, specifically the promise of Christ's return and his final judgment. In chapter 2 and 3, Peter confronted the, the lives and the errors of false teachers who denied these two doctrines specifically. And so now he turns to address three questions that were certainly in the heart of his audience and probably are in the heart of some of us today. First question is, why has the day of the Lord not yet come? Secondly, what will happen when it does come? And thirdly, how should we live? How should we live in light of that coming day? Friends, these, these questions are important questions, and the answers are equally important because they determine, to a large degree, how you will live your life. So the main idea today is that we ought to live godly, patient, and repentant lives as we wait for Christ's return. We should live godly, patient, and repentant lives as we wait for Christ to return. The first question is a question that has been on the minds of believers throughout all of history, and it's an uncommon week when I, Pastor John, don't say to each other something like, come Lord Jesus. Why is the day of the Lord not yet come? And Peter answers, he says, because God, who is eternal and not subject to time, is patient. Because God is giving us time to repent. So to help us live faithfully for Christ's return, Peter wants us to remember two truths about God. So this is how your orthodoxy informs your orthopraxy. What you believe informs what you do. What you believe is that God is eternal. And secondly, that God is patient. So let's take these each in sequence. First, God is eternal. God is not subject to time. God does not see time the way we do. So look at verse 8, and you'll see this in the text. Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day 
is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, Peter is probably alluding to a passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 90, verse 4, where the psalmist says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The psalmist says God sees and God experiences time differently. A thousand years, in a sense, to him is like a three-hour watch in the night. They would divide the night up into bits. You just stay up for your bit, make sure the camp is safe. It's a short time, then you go back to sleep. God says a thousand years, it's like that. It's like yesterday after yesterday already happened. Now, friends, some of us and some individuals have thought that this is a formula, that it's like the way we count out dog years to human years, that there's like a certain number. It's like, oh, so for every day, that's the thousand years. And no, it's not a formula. One day for God does not equal a thousand human years. There aren't God years and human years. Peter is reminding us that because God is eternal, God is outside of time. He's beyond time. God steps into time or around time or out of time like you or like my Kelly would step into and out of or through a puddle. It is as easy for him as what you or I might do. I'm in, I'm out. I, I can walk around it. I can enter it. I can leave it. Time is as much God's creature. Time is as much God's servant as our clouds, storms, oceans, the sun, the moon, and the stars, all of creation. Time is his servant. He can command time to do what he pleases. And therefore, God is neither young nor old. God simply is. Psalmist in Psalm 102, verse 27 says, But you are the same. Your years have no end. He's comparing God to the cosmos. Just as a grown man and a young boy experience a long trip differently, you might imagine my, my first, I think the first time that I really remember experiencing this was my brother was looking at colleges, and in order to do that, we had to drive across Pennsylvania. We lived in Connecticut. I was young. And I didn't realize just how long Pennsylvania could be. <laughs> it just seemed to take forever. And if any of you have done like a 12-hour trip, especially with really small children, you know, you get in and within five to 10 minutes, they're like, so, are we there yet? No, not there yet. We're not gonna be there yet until after breakfast and lunch and dinner and possibly into the evening. <laughs> so for for small, for young people, that time just seems to stretch on and on and on. But, but you know that as you get older, the time, even though it might be uncomfortable, a long trip in the car might be uncomfortable, it actually goes by a great deal faster. And you've lots of things to occupy your mind with. There's lots of things you could think about. There's lots of things you could talk about. In that same way, God sees time differently than we do. We are like little children to the way that he sees time. The second reason, so the first reason 
is that God is eternal. The second reason that the day of the Lord has not yet come is because God is patient. Because God is giving us time to repent. So look at verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's probably speaking about the false teachers. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the false teachers had concluded that since Christ had not returned in a few years, even possibly a few decades at most, they had concluded simply he would not return at all. And surely you've encountered this argument. Christ hasn't come back in a few centuries. Christ hasn't come back in a millennia. Christ is not coming back. Instead, Peter reminds us that God's timing reflects God's gracious character. And it's actually purposeful. God hasn't lost sight of the fact that he wants to send Jesus back. Oh, that's right. I need to save my church. No. God is patiently waiting for every believer to come to full and complete repentance. So there's two notes that we need to make here, and they're, they're connected. The first thing to note here is that Scripture does teach that God, in some sense, desires everyone to repent. There's a sense in which God desires all people to repent. But the second thing we need to pay attention to in this text is that that is not what Peter is saying here. So first, it is true. God does, in a sense, desire, and he certainly commands all people to repent and be saved. And we should pray to that end. We should work to that end. We, we even prayed to that end today in, in church. Look, uh, so for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we can hear that Paul says, God, he's speaking of God, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's true. In some sense, God desires all people to repent. But in this text... Peter, I don't think, is emphasizing that. Peter is not emphasizing God's general concern for all of creation. Instead, I think Peter is emphasizing his special concern for the church. So the second thing we need to note is the day of the Lord has not yet come because God is patiently waiting for believers to repent. Look closely at verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And if you carry that object through the rest of the sentence, it would read like this, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. The danger that we've been dealing with this whole entire epistle is that false teachers were threatening to infect godly people, believers, with dangerous views that could destroy their life and erode and destroy the church. But God, Peter says, rather than bringing judgment on them instantly, and we need to remind ourselves of what this judgment is. If you remember from chapter 2, verse 3, you'll remember that that judgment is from long ago. Remember? He said that that judgment that God has over them is not asleep. 
he said. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, they are being kept, reserved for that judgment. So, if we keep that in mind, rather than destroying the wheat along with the tares, to use Jesus' language, God is instead patiently withholding his wrath specifically for the sake of his church. He is waiting for every believer to come to full and mature repentance. He wants every believer to get right with him before it is too late. So right here you can see that there are two senses in which we use the word repentance. There's the common sense of repentance. First, that God is waiting for people to be saved. I mean, to repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. That, that is the most common way that repentance is used. It's the most common way that repentance is meant. And certainly there is a sense of that here. But there is another sense, too. A sense of repentance as it relates to sanctification. Being changed over time, more and more, continually into the image of Christ. And it is in this sense that our whole Christian life, in one sense, is an act of ever-renewing repentance. Many of you know Martin Luther. Many of you probably know of the 95 Theses. You may remember that the very first Theses is when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. This is an idea that in our life as a Christian, we are continually, continually, again and again, turning away from sin, resisting our indwelling sin nature, and straining by God's power toward Christ. We know that we will never achieve perfection in this life, but we are constantly at war with sin and constantly pressing on to know the Lord. And it is in this sense that I think Peter is saying that God is waiting for both kinds of repentance. God is waiting both for everyone who is ransomed by Christ at his cross to come to repentance. So there are some people, perhaps in this room, there are some people right now who have yet to come to Christ and God, in his mercy, has not sent Christ back to judge the quick and the dead. He is waiting. He is waiting for those people, perhaps even for you, to relent of your sin and trust in Christ. He's waiting for you to repent. But he's also waiting for those who are already in Christ, who have already repented of their sin in that definitive sense, to know him more to know him more fully, to be drawn closer to him. So what I think Peter is doing here in these first verses is he's calling us to embrace a divine perspective on time. He wants you to embrace a divine perspective on time. He wants us to learn to see our life as a brief but very meaningful opportunity to know God. To see our life and our time as a gift as a precious resource, as worthy of our stewardship as every dime in our account so that we would live for Christ with all that we are 
for all of our life. So let's make this a little bit more tangible. What are some things we could do that would allow us to embrace a divine perspective on time? First, what I mean by that, bluntly, is to live repentantly. For some of you, brothers and sisters, friends, God has given you one more day, one more hour to repent, to look at your sins, to look at Christ, and to go for Christ. To say, I repent of my sins, and I trust in Christ. Christ, I can't save myself. I, there is nothing I have that could warrant your righteous reward. Save me, Christ. But for others of us, God has given you more time to more fully escape the power of sin. He has given you one more hour to more fully learn his grace. He has given you yet another day to delight in him more fully. So, friends, live repentantly. Secondly, live humbly and live patiently. Live humbly and live patiently. Friend, accept that God, not you, is sovereign over time. Accept that God, not you, is sovereign over time. And as a consequence, accept that God knows the right time for all things. God never errs in his timing. He sends hardship at precisely the right time. He permits hardship for precisely the right time. He sends joy at precisely the right time. I can't help myself. Gandalf says a wizard is... Never early, never late, he arrives precisely when he means to. God is always at the right time. He sends the right time to bring justice. He knows the right time to bring you rest. He knows the right time to bring you healing. He knows the right time to send you friendship. He knows the right time to draw out repentance. So yes, while we should pray fervently, we should live wisely we should live patiently. We should not despise the timing of God. I know it's easy to say, and I say it. I probably said it to my wife yesterday in a number of ways. You might say in your heart, you know, why am I still single? Why am I still childless? Why am I still sick? Why am I still poor? Why am I still lonely? Why hasn't my job come through? Why hasn't the letter arrived? Why won't my child talk to me? Persevere. Persevere in trusting God, even as you wait for his help. God is sovereign over time. Live humbly, live patiently. Thirdly, live vigilantly and live faithfully. So by the same token, over here we have this restraint, this Christian restraint. I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait for his timing there is at the same time recognizing that God is sovereign over your time should stir you up to live for Christ with all your might while you yet live. Live with Christ, live for Christ with all your might while you yet live. Ephesians 5 verses 15 and 16, the apostle Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, and he means how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Friend, it is so hard to remember this. 
The younger we are, the harder it is to believe this. But our life is a vapor. It hasn't happened this week because apparently it's been summer this week, which is lovely. But two weeks ago or three weeks ago, you could have gone out in the morning, breathed, and your breath would have disappeared in the mist. It would have been there for a moment and gone. God says that's your life. Your life is a vapor. It's here one moment. It's gone the next. Every moment you have is a gift from God to purposefully draw you closer to him. So what would it look like for you to redeem the time that God has given you? Right now, in this season of your life, each of us has different abilities, time, availability, giftings, resources. What would it look like in your life to redeem the time that God has given to you? Friend, redeem the time that you have. Read good books. Sing good songs. Eat healthy meals. Build good relationships. Make good things. Do it with the strength and with the time that God provides. Don't wait to be diagnosed with cancer to stop wasting the days that the Lord gives you. So knowing that our days are a gift of God's sovereign grace should fill us with a sense of holy urgency to pursue heartfelt repentance, to live for Christ with all our might while we yet live, to quote John Piper, don't waste your life. But also to live with a kind of quiet calm. So the whole time that we're earnestly and urgently pursuing Christ, to, to know that God is ruling over our every moment for our good and for his glory. And we're held in the hand of God. Underneath you are the everlasting arms. Second question is, what will happen when the day of the Lord does come? What will happen when the day of the Lord does come? It hasn't happened yet because God is eternal and because God is patient. What will happen when it does come? He says, God will suddenly and dramatically judge and recreate the world. Look at verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, while it may seem to some as though the day of the Lord will never come, Peter assures us that when it does come, it will be unexpected and it will be swift. And what it will bring is universal judgment and total renewal. So let's break these ideas into bits. Unexpected and swift. The day of the Lord, he says, will come like a thief. I have been privileged, not yet in my life, to have been robbed, but thieves do not announce their arrival. They do not send a note saying, next Thursday, 7 o'clock in the evening, I'm stealing your TV. Just so you know. No, they come suddenly. They come unexpectedly. Jesus uses this same or similar illustration. In Matthew 24, 43 and 44, he says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Christians, many of you know this, do not 
waste the time that God has given you trying to discover the date of our Lord's return. It's okay to laugh, but at the same time, I'm serious. Remember the first point? Every moment you have is a gift of God to be used to draw you closer to him. Do not waste the precious hours, moments, and days that God has given you trying to determine the date of our Lord's return. Instead, obey Jesus and prepare for it. Matthew 24, 45 and 46, the next few verses, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Fancy way of saying is, what do you want Jesus to find you doing when Jesus shows up? What Jesus told you to do. If, you know, when I was younger, if my mother had left the house to go and run an errand, and if she had told me, I want the living room vacuumed when I return. And if she had returned and I were eating Cheetos on that carpet and were not vacuumed, she would not find me doing what she wanted me to do when she returned. Friend, we don't, it, it doesn't, it's not a really complicated thing. Just be faithful. Do what the Lord has told you to do. The way to be ready for Christ's return is to occupy yourself with the work that God has given us. God gives us the work of raising families, of loving our friends, of doing good to our neighbors, of working faithfully in the jobs that he's given us. He's given us lots and lots of good work to do. Be faithful in doing that good work for when the Lord comes. Live repentant, live holy, live faithful lives. So first, it's unexpected and it will be swift. Secondly, it brings judgment. And friends, we need to be ready because when Christ comes, he will carry out a final judgment. Peter's imagery is all at the same time, overwhelming and gloriously hopeful. Christ's coming in glory and power. I, I like to imagine things, and this is one of my favorite things to imagine. Christ's coming in glory and power will substantially alter the universe. It will be, in a sense, as though the universe is unmade because God himself will rend the heavens and enter into time and space. And the glory of God, the glory that no living human being can look at and survive, that glory will so emanate all, throughout all things that the way things work, they can't anymore. It will fall apart at the presence of the glory of God. There's arguments all over the place as to what Peter is even saying here because he's, I think, trying to describe something that really can't be described. He says the heavenly bodies, he literally uses the word elements. He's talking about the actual building blocks of creation. He might even be referring to the present world order, like how stuff works. He says that will combust. It will disintegrate in the presence of God like a candle would if you put it into a steel forge. By the glory of his presence... He will expose everything to his holy judgment, even believers. And I think in verse 10, many of us, our translations will, div will diverge broadly at this point. I think the ESV is right to say the works that are done on it will be exposed. We have already reflected on what such a judgment means for unbelievers. We've talked about that. Here, remember, Peter is talking about 
believers. He's addressing believers. He wants believers to repent, and he's talking about judgment for believers. He's addressing the church. In verse 8, he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. And in verse 9, he says, but he is patient toward you. Peter is calling believers to prepare our hearts and lives for God's judgment through repentance and holy living. He does this for two reasons, at least. The first is because the lives that we build on the foundation of Christ will be tested. Because the lives that we build on the foundation of Christ will be tested as though by fire. Paul speaks about this, uses the same imagery in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest or it'll be revealed for the day, and he means the final day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Christians have a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of disagreement here, and I can't go over all the different perspectives. I'm giving you mine. Such judgment, I believe, has a painful but necessary and glorious purpose. I believe that this judgment in the life of a Christian acts like a crucible and like a forge. It is to purge us from sin and to prepare us for glory. Friend, remember that heaven is a holy place. And the Lord of heaven is a holy Lord. J.C. Ryle says, holiness is written on everything in heaven. Remember that the Apostle John, when he sees this new creation, Revelation 21, verse 27, says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does whatever is detestable or false. Friend, on that day, the day that Christ returns, the day that Christ judges the earth by the glory of his presence, nothing hidden, no secret sin will be able to remain concealed. So, friend, what we have to hold very carefully here is that on the one hand, in Christ, we have escaped God's wrath. Praise God. In Christ, we will not, not now, not ever, face the wrath of God. God is not angry with Christians. Yet we will not be spared Christ's judgment. We will face a judgment. Because unless our sinful dross is purged away, we will not be fit for heaven. So, make a practice of regular repentance. Put off your old works of darkness. Put on the new clothes of light. Because Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will enter into judgment. The second reason, the first reason, is the lives that we build on Christ's foundation will be tested. But the second reason we should make a lifelong practice of repentance and pursuing holiness is because holiness prepares us for the joy of heaven. And this, by far, is what I think is the motivation that Peter 
really wants to lean into. Yes, is it right and good for a Christian to fear the Lord's judgment and to repent and to turn back from sin? Yes, God uses many means to draw his children unto himself, but by far what the Bible uses and what Christ uses to draw his children to himself is the joy of his presence. The second reason we should, we should make a lifelong practice of repentance and pursuing holiness is because holiness prepares us for the joy of heaven. So just look briefly at verse 13 in your text. He says, but according to his promise, so he, he sort of sets aside all this discussion of judgment, right? He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friend, if you haven't read J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, just make it somewhere on your, on your books to read list. Please, every Christian should read J.C. Ryle's Holiness. He says there, how will we ever be at home and happy in heaven if we die unholy? Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes are not your tastes. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? There must be, he says, a certain fitness for the inheritance of the saints of light. Our hearts, he says, must be somewhat in tune. To reach the holiday of glory, we must pass through the training school of grace. We must be heavenly-minded and have heavenly tastes in the present life, or else we will never find ourselves in the heaven to come. Peter urges us not to live perfect lives, although we ought to strive for perfection. He urges us to live repentant and holy lives, not primarily out of a fear of God's judgment, but more properly for a love of God himself. This is why, he says, we are, in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You, you want the day of God to come because you want God, because you want the things of God, because you want to be in that place where righteousness dwells. Because the awesome weight of God's judgment is just the prelude to the joy of his new creation. In Matthew 19, verses 28 through 29, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, literally the recreation, the palingenesia, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Friends, that is what Christ died to save you for, to bring you whole and holy into a new world where all that was lost will be restored, where what was broken will be made new, and where our truest loves will be forever satisfied in the person of Christ. So then three, how should we live? How should we live in light of these realities? Well, we should live a life marked by godliness, a life marked by faithful expectancy, a life marked by repentance. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Peter says we should live holy lives, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Well, let's take each of these in reverse order. Hasten. What does it mean to hasten the day of the Lord's coming? Well, we know one thing. We know what it doesn't mean. We know that none of us can speed up or slow down Christ's return in a chronological sense. We know that God has secretly but unalterably fixed the day of Christ's return. The Apostle Paul told us so in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But, so we know we can't speed it up chronologically, we can't slow it down chronologically, the the church can't be so disobedient that Christ has to wait, and the church can't be so obedient that Christ suddenly comes. If we put together what we've said this far, I think we have an answer. You see, we know from verse 9 that God is patiently waiting. Not in this case so much for unbelievers, but for believers to reach repentance. So we hasten the day of the Lord not chronologically, we hasten it faithfully by regularly practicing repentance and by pursuing a holy life. To a certain extent, we hasten the day of the Lord's coming by occupying ourselves with what Christ has given us to do. Therefore, what might this look like? How can we practice and how can we encourage other people to practice a life marked by repentance? The first one is perhaps obvious by repenting ourselves. But I mean this by modeling repentance, letting other people see your repentance in prayer, before them, to them. And this includes not just private prayer. Obviously, yes, we should privately pray and repent to God, absolutely. But we should repent with and repent toward others. Parents, do you repent to your children? By repenting to your children, you show them your submission to God. You show them the goodness of the gospel. You show them a godly attitude. You show them the beauty of grace. The second way is by sharing the gospel with others. One of the most basic ways you can help someone else to repent is by telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. By helping them remember that part of the gospel is the call to repentance and faith. The third way is by forgiving those who repent. So if we repent ourselves, we share the gospel, the good news with others, and if we show real forgiveness to people who, for, to people who repent, that makes the opportunity of repentance grow. We encourage repentance when we offer sincere and full-hearted forgiveness to those who repent. And this also shows our consciousness of our own need for grace. And it reflects our desire to be accepted by God. Whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer is an admission that 
I have forgiven those who have sinned against me. And that's why I have boldness to come before Christ to ask for his forgiveness. So friends, model repentance, share the gospel, and forgive those who repent. The next question is, what does it mean to wait for his coming? And obviously, it doesn't mean that we should sit still and do nothing. Jesus made that clear in the teaching that we heard earlier. Instead, it means to wait with faithful expectancy. Think of Psalm 103, or Psalm 130, verses 6 and 7. The psalmist says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. I will receive my Lord's judgment. I am waiting for his reward. With the Lord comes plentiful redemption. To wait for the coming of the Lord is like waiting for a baby to be born. You know it's going to happen. You don't know exactly when it's going to happen. It's something that you really, really want to happen. There's lots to be done before it happens. You, you know, set, maybe set up a room, maybe set up a nursery, maybe you, you buy things, you have friends giving you gifts, and the whole time you're thinking about, you know, what, what name are we going to choose, and what are we going to need, and what's their life going to look like? The whole entire life. Waiting, expectantly, eagerly. Friend, whether or not you've had the blessing of experiencing that or having it satisfied in this life, all of us are waiting for Christ like that. We're setting aside space in our life that's just totally dedicated to him. And, and we're thinking about him all the time. And we're, we're ready. You have a go bag, as it were. You know, like you're, just, you're ready at the drop of a hat. When, when he comes, I'm going to go. To wait for the coming of the Lord means to live in a way that is consciously aware and eagerly longing for the day of the Lord and for the day of his return. When Mary Elizabeth was pregnant with David, our first, I mean, up towards the end, like I was just on pins and needles. I had a go bag with me all the time. I was ready because our, the hospital was like 45 minutes from the house. So you just had to be ready. <laughs> be ready. Christ can come today. And lastly, wait in holiness and with godliness. Thirdly, Peter enjoins us to live a holy and a godly life. And this subject deserves way more time than I can give it. To be holy means to be totally dedicated, to be totally set apart to God. We might reserve a room for the baby, but Christ has us reserve our whole life for him. <laughs> Everything we have is his. A holy man is a man who is at war with sin and a man who is in love with God. A holy man is a humble man. The closer he is to Christ, the more plainly he sees his need for grace. Holiness is the habit of striving to be of one mind with God, to love what God loves and to hate what God hates according to how we find his mind in Scripture. And that is why a holy man is a repentant man. A holy man is also a joyful man, a man who is waiting faithfully and eagerly for the day of the Lord, longing for Christ to rend the heavens and come down for sin to be no more, for the dead to be raised. A holy man lives, as it were, waiting and longing for that new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's conclude. Why has the day of the Lord not yet come? 
because God is patiently waiting for every sinner Christ redeemed to learn repentance. What will happen on that day? The Lord will descend in glory and in great power to bring all things under his judgment, to purge us finally of all sin, and to prepare us for his work of new creation. So how should we live? We should live godly, patient, repentant lives, waiting for Christ's return. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God of our encouragement and our steadfast hope, encourage our heart this day. For those who are struggling to trust in your timing, Lord, we ask that you would renew their patience Grant them relief. For those of us exulting in the good gifts that you've given us, help us not to hold on to the gift so hard that we forget the giver. And in all things, Father, expose to us hidden sins. Help us to repent of them and trust in Christ. Give us confidence in the righteousness of Christ that clothes us and protects us, makes us your children, brings us into your eternal kingdom. But help us to learn to love what you love today and to reframe and reshape our lives by your strength, by your spirit in a way that is more pleasing to you and delights our soul in your goodness and glory and grace. And Father, finally, we give you thanks that you are waiting until the day that every last member that you have ransomed by your blood will be brought into the household of faith. Oh, but Father, send your son soon. Maranatha, Lord Jesus Christ, please come. Come soon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.